Hey guys. Good evening. Uh, we have a few people already logged in and uh, everybody looks to be renaming herself. There's one person that's not renamed. I'll go ahead and do that. Um, what would be a good name? We've got Pilates, Ice and Snow, <laughs> Alice in Wonderland. What am I going to do? Gale Force wins. And then rename. Okay. Does anybody have anything they'd like to talk about? If so, please raise your hand and we will get started. Also, I'll make sure the chat's working. Okay, the chat's working. Okay, sunshine on my shoulders. Here we go. How you doing? Good evening. What's up? Hey, I uh, wanted to talk about a incident that happened yesterday in the OR. Okay. Um, so I'm a fellow uh sports medicine and i had a um interesting case yesterday with an attending who's probably a little over two years into practice who um just did, was having a bad day kind of struggling mm -hmm. scope um and i just want to know i want your thoughts on like the role of a fellow in that case when you can tell that it's time for an attending to maybe take a step back and take a breather uh, because they're actually doing more harm than good. Um, and whether the fellow speaks up or not, and what should the fellow say, uh, you know, without offending or, um, you know, making the attending feel worse than they already do in that in that moment. Yeah, what a great question. This is a great question. Um, and one that I think is not asked often enough. And I mean, ultimately, what are we shooting for in surgery is to create a safe environment for our patient and for the patient to have the best possible outcome. And it could be that a fellow has a hard time engaging in that sort of situation or the circulating nurse or a scrub tech or a medical student or the anesthesiologist. And it's so like, I think there's a lesson here for all of us to look at this case and determine, you know, what would be a good course of action. So thank you for bringing it. Is it possible to give us some details about what exactly happened without revealing anything personal to the attending or your location or, you know, the patient or anything like that? Sure. 
Um, so doing an elbow scope, teenager, uh, OCD or capitella OCD lesion, um, just plan was to do the diagnostic scope, um, some, uh, drilling or a microfracture and that was it. Um, and basically got one portal, got the camera inside, uh, but could not get the second portal or a working portal to get any instruments in and struggled for pretty much all of tourniquet time. Uh, and even went 30 minutes beyond and had to make the decision to open, uh, you know, uh, after a while. But it took a little push from me to convince the attending that it was time to stop what we were doing and move on to plan B. Okay. What did you say? Um, I kept, <laughs> first I was, I was talking to myself for a long time, just trying to think, what can I do to help? Um, probably about after, I don't know, 30 minutes to 45 minutes of just kind of doing the same thing over and over, I suggested it could tell that, uh, the attending was getting pretty frustrated. So I suggested that he let me go ahead and give it a try to give him a chance to maybe walk away and take a breather and try to, and like come back. Mm -hmm. Uh, not saying that I would be able to get it, just saying like, why don't you just let me try for a bit just so you can get a chance to like, you know, kind of maybe think of some other ideas. Um, every, and you know, he took it well. It's not like he got upset with me or anything like that. Mm -hmm. Uh, he did, uh, after maybe 10 minutes of suggesting that he did walk away and, um, I, I attempted to, you know, to create the portal and he kind of came back within five minutes and, you know, and, uh, took over again. Um, and then, you know, we are maybe at this point, we're at maybe an hour and a half into tourniquet time. Uh, I'm still making some suggestions as far as like, maybe we should try like creating a different portal, you know, doing this. I've, I've mentioned maybe we should consider opening. He really just didn't want to. And then um, once we got to two hours on the tourniquet and he said, well, let's just add another 30. I was like, okay, we got to We really got to do something different here because <laughs> the, you know, kids elbow was arm pretty much was like swollen and we had to turn it up way longer than it should have been. Um, so I think when we were 30 minutes over turning time, I said, we, we, it's time to like open this. Um, like we are way over turning time. Um, the kid's arm is like really swollen at this point and, uh, this isn't working. So I, I, you know, let's just do this approach, get down to the lesion, do the, do the surgery and get out of here. Okay. And he, and he, and again, he like, he went, he went ahead and said, I'm going to scrub out. I'm going to go talk to the family, came back in and we did that. We opened we did the surgery within basically 15 minutes and closed. Wow. Good job. So, um, you did the right thing. You handled it quite well and quite effectively. My guess is, is that the reason you're bringing this up is because you would have wanted to do this before the tourniquet time ran over. Yes. I felt that I, I felt that I should have stepped in sooner. I just was, I wasn't, I'm not sure how to do that without, I guess I was worried I would upset him. Mm -hmm. I know and that I was eating multiple things that moment. One of the things was I'm about to be in his shoes this could easily be me. Mm -hmm. Um, and so what, what, I guess, what would I want if there was a fellow with me, what would I want them to do? Um, 
but I think I, I feel like I should have spoken up sooner. I felt terrible. The kid's arm turned into a pincushion. How was he afterwards? Was his nerves intact? Yes. Yes. Uh, you know, there was talk about doing a nerve block post-op and the decision was to hold off until we had a, a very good nerve vascular exam. Okay. So other than swelling, thankfully, in this particular instance of going over an accepted amount of tourniquet time, there was no harm done. Correct. Okay. Um, so did you talk to the attending about it afterwards to kind of debrief on it? Um, we talked about it. So in the OR, when we started to close, uh, we talked about what we think, why we think we were struggling so much to get uh, our portals. Uh, and basically once we opened, we realized that we probably were too proximal on the arm and we were, um, I uh, kind of running into the distal humerus, like for, you know, when, when trying to uh, advance like probes and stuff into the, into the elbow. Um, but I had to run to the clinic. So the resident basically closed. I had to get out of there because I was already about two, three hours late to clinic. So. Okay. Fortunately, we, we have not spoken since the way, you know, we, we left the OR. What's your timeout process like? Um, right before, so we scrub in, uh, put drapes up and right before we make incision, we time out before we put the tourniquet up and, uh, you know, use the, um, Esmart, we time out. Um, so it's like right before tourniquet and incision. And what's included in your particular timeout? Uh, name, date of birth, allergies, um, Surgical uh, site. ASA, surgical site, of course. Uh, ASA. Um, any co- concerns as far as comorbidities, anything like that? Um, I, yeah, I guess like your standard timeout. Is there any opportunity in the timeout to offer to the room to speak up if they feel something is unsafe? No. I'm taking copious notes, so um, bear with me a second. Okay. And in this particular instance, it sounds like this person received the feedback in an effective way, and you gave the feedback in an effective way. Is that fair? I think that's fair. Okay. So kudos to him for not losing it and kudos to you for speaking up. Was anybody else in the room demonstrating any discomfort with the process? Were you able to pick up on that vibe? Anesthesia, for sure. Uh, They didn't say anything, but you could tell uh, they kind of were looking over the drapes and wondering what was going on. Uh, And then when we dropped the tourniquet, anesthesia was like, thank God. (laughs) Um, There was a PGY3 in the room as well who shared some thoughts on, you know, what, you know, basically what we could potentially, you know, do differently. Uh, but he was probably quite majority of the case. Um, yeah, that was probably it. I, I just, I did notice the anesthesia kept looking over the drapes. There was another thing where, you know, he, 
the attending, you know, you, at moments was getting so frustrated. He, I think he forgot the patient's head. It was like right there. And it was like kind of dropping down instruments on the table pretty hard. And I was like, I feel like I should have spoken up even then. I, Cause I kept grabbing the instruments and like holding them in my hand. Uh, but I, it's like, I wanted to be like, look, I know you're frustrated right now, but you can't just drop <laughs> instruments on the, the patient's head. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So there's so much here. This is like juicy. First of all, there's an opportunity to circle back with anybody who would be willing to debrief on this particular case and improve patient safety at this facility. Mm-hmm. One of the ways to do that is at the beginning of the case to establish guidelines for how to speak up and create a sense of safety for anybody in the room who may be so inclined to speak up. And that's something that's really effective during the timeout. It's typically something that needs to be led by the attending. And obviously you wouldn't have had control over that. I'm assuming the attending is the one that does the timeout. Is that true for your facility? Yes, that's correct. Okay. So this is something to take forward with you as you get into your own practice and maybe share with other people as something to consider. When you say it at the beginning of the case, before anything has gone wrong, and you establish that in this OR, everybody has a voice. If you see something, say something. We can talk about what it is and move forward from there so that everybody's on the same page about these sorts of things happening. It kind of sets the tone for the attending, too, to be responsive to feedback. Because otherwise, how would you know? And people are often really afraid to speak up. Um, in aviation, there's a rule. Um, I might get this wrong. My husband's a pilot. We talk about this stuff all the time. And I forgot the exact name of the rule, but it's like something like the two challenge rule. So if there are any pilots on the, we have a Pilates, but um, somebody who renamed herself as Pilates on the group today, but I'm talking about pilots. And um, that's if the person who's flying the aircraft is doing something that's unsafe, it's not only um, allowed, but expected for somebody to say something. And if the pilot doesn't respond, it's not only allowed, but expected to say it again. And if they don't respond after two challenges, then the co-pilot takes control of the aircraft. So I think it would behoove us to kind of model some kind of safety mechanism around that because what has happened to your attending in this case is the tunnel vision you get when you are so frustrated. Mm-hmm. And you were right in determining that that's a really unsafe for that person to be. So now that we have all that established, Let's answer your real question, which is you wanted to say something earlier, but didn't. And even though nothing bad happened, you probably would have felt better with your own engagement of the situation if you had said something earlier. True? Yes, true. Okay. So how to do that in such a way as to not create conflict? This is like the million dollar question. (laughs) There are a couple of tricks 
But first, let me talk a little bit about primal safety. So in general, human beings need to have a sense of primal safety in whatever they're doing. And this guy was an inherently in an unsafe position. I'm sure he was internally freaking out. He might have even been having some kind of a stress response. So that's one part of it. But the other part of it is for you as a human being engaging in this situation to establish primal safety for yourself to speak up. And some of the ways we can do that are really easy. And that's just with a little levity and sometimes absurdity. And it's just enough of that kind of like off the wallness that can help kind of snap somebody out of it. And this is just a technique of communication. So I wonder if there was a way to just introduce a little levity in the situation to help snap him out of it for just a second. And I'm going to think about it, and I'm going to ask you to think about it. Um, maybe something something to the effect of, well, if this were easy, everybody would do it. Mm-hmm. You know, something like that. Like, introducing, like, the levity around the seriousness of what you're currently attempting to do just in an effort to kind of pull that person out of that tunnel. Right. Um, he did saying, you know, gosh, on the videos, they make it look so easy. And I did say to him, I was like, well, those people have been doing this for a lot longer, you know? So, right. It's easier. Yeah. So the difference, and there's nothing wrong with saying that, but this is just a little subtle nuance in communication. When we speak to be really effective, our thoughts and our feelings that are behind the words that we say are really, really important. So when you're saying that, like, yeah, well, these other people have been doing it a really long time. What was the thought and the feeling behind that? You saying those words. I was hoping it would make him feel better in the moment because I know he was so frustrated with himself. Yeah. These people have been, let me think about that. These people have been doing this a long time. Basically like, don't be so hard on yourself. And yeah, with him being so flustered that made it a little bit more challenging, honestly, to move forward with like next steps of the case. 100%. Because we know like if we can hearken back to the model, we know what his model is. He's having these thoughts swirl around in his brain that are causing him to feel frustrated. He's probably thinking, I suck. Why can't I get this? Um, I don't know what dudes think, like maybe other stuff. And so his feeling is frustrated and then he's doing actions that are completely ineffective. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. So here's another little trick. Is just considering what creates primal safety for men versus what creates primal safety for women. Men in general, of course, these are generalities. They're not absolute, but it has to do with social conditioning. In general, a male to be accepted within a group and not shunned or, you know, like 
to be part of the bro pack, a male needs to be confident in what he is doing and right in what he is doing, lest he look weak or ineffective because other people pick up on that and immediately think he's like not a part of the pack. It's very um, primarily risky. So just knowing that is a part of like how many men uh, engage that might also offer like an inroad into how your engagement could create safety for him. So let's think about that for a second. Like imagine he's thinking I must look like an ass. Like I got to be right. I got to get this right. Otherwise I'm weak. What else do you think he could be thinking? He's not a good surgeon. I'm not a good surgeon. I mean, he actually said some of this out loud. So he, I shouldn't be here. I shouldn't be doing this. Yeah. Maybe even something like, you know, even the best of the best struggle sometimes, or even the best of the best have have these cases. You don't even have to say struggle because like that could be interpreted as judgment. Mm-hmm. But it's like even the best of the best have these cases. So let's take a moment here and think about what would the best of the best do to recover? Because that implies that there's nothing wrong with him. Like even the best of the best sometimes have a situation like that. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah, it makes sense. It's just a communication technique that creates safety. It also creates safety for you too, because you're not judging. You're not having to be right or wrong about anything. You're simply posing like an alternative. Like, ooh, that's the other thing. This is, this is an actual coaching technique is called coaching in the alternative where you're like, well, either we can just keep slogging away at this or we can just stop and and take a break and like regroup. Like what seems, what seems better? What do you want to do? It It's kind of like highlights two options that then become obvious on what to do and try to like snap somebody out of it. Is that making sense? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So do you think you could have taken one of those actions? If we could rewind the clock and this was happening, would you have felt comfortable taking one of those actions? Um, not at first. It, okay. it took, it took, I think it really was the, clock ticking down on the turning at time that gave me the courage to finally say something. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think I would have had a harder time speaking up and saying something similar to, uh, you know, what you just implied earlier on. I think it would have taken a little bit more time for me, but maybe if I could go back now, you know, would, would I feel comfortable saying something I think so. 
Yeah. And, and honestly, it sounds like when you really knew there was danger, you, you did speak up. Mm-hmm. Right. Like there was an internal bell going off for you. Here's one other thing that I'll offer, and then we can open this up. We've got other people commenting. Um, somebody says, if you know who the surgeon's mentor slash hero is, you could ask, what would so-and-so do in this situation? That's an excellent thing. Like, because it's not judgmental. It, it's just like that little bit of, of um, you know, just like lobbing a question to snap somebody out of that tunnel vision. Um. I've been there when I had this tunnel vision and I had outright like declined help. So I know how difficult of a situation that is. And this is really, really worth debriefing on in some way, not in a judgmental way, but in a, Hey, how can we all learn to be better here? Kind of way. Um, There was one other thing I wanted to offer once when I was a resident and it was, I think it was like a two or a three. So fairly junior. And we had a case um, where I was working with a spine surgeon and we lost signals, had to do a wake up test. And this patient who was a child was paralyzed. And I saw it happen. My attending like literally zeroed in, just completely shut down. And that's a little more of an extreme example, but I actually scrubbed out. And I went and got another spine surgeon and brought him into the room. So if the shit is really hitting the fan, there is always the option to do that, to just call for help. Um, Our culture does not, um, it's not like aviation where it's not only allowed, but it is expected for somebody to say something. And if, if the person flying the plane doesn't respond, then somebody else takes over. I do think that it's worth making efforts to create that culture. Um, And again, establishing it at the beginning during the timeout really is an effective way to kind of give everybody the um, empowerment to speak up if they see something that doesn't look right. Mm -hmm. Um, Does anybody else have anything to offer here. This is a really important topic. So I'm going to let Gale Force Winds speak here. So hang on just a second. Let's allow her to talk. Hi. Hello. What do you have to add? So I was just thinking about for the fellow, for your own learning and going forth in a very short amount of time, and you are going to be in these situations. Hmm. Teach yourself some techniques for what you're going to do when you find yourself in this situation. Um, one of the things one of my mentors used to do uh, when he was the attending and he would say to us as the fellow, you have five minutes to accomplish the next step. And if you can't accomplish it in that time, then we're going to do something different. So that is, that's one thing. Give yourself a time limit to say, Mm -hmm. I'm going to try this for X amount of time. Another technique I've had mentors do and that I personally use is I bring all the steps of a complicated case written out and I hang them on the wall of the OR. 
And if I am struggling, I will go look at that damn list and make sure I didn't miss a step. Sometimes I include pictures if I, you know, of exactly where that portal hole goes or some little tidbit that somebody taught me along the way um, as a means of stopping myself and giving myself a moment. These are just ideas for you going forth because there's nothing worse than being the person in charge and not knowing what to do next. Um, I had another one, but those are the ones I can think of at the moment. Those are both excellent. Um, I do the same thing with posting the steps on the wall, particularly in more complicated cases. Like if it's pinning a supercondylar, I won't do it, but, but the, you know, the complicated reconstruction cases for sure. And I think, you know, I'm, I'm a proponent of creating a team atmosphere in the room because everybody in the room has a job to do and we're dependent on everybody doing their job well for the sake of the patient's success. So when the whole plan is written up on the wall, everybody in the room benefits from that. Yep. I'll even sometimes, if I have limited help in the OR, I'll go through the operative plan with the scrub tech Mm -hmm. beforehand. And I'll say, hey, here, when I get to here, I'm going to need this special instrument. Yeah. Um, I've gone like overboard with our timeout. And have basically, so at the end of our timeout, it says, if anybody sees anything unsafe, I expect you to speak up. I think that language is horrible. It's like, it's, it puts pressure. So what I do is I say, if anybody, so first of all, I'll say, everybody here has a voice that matters to me and matters to the patient. So If you see something that appears unsafe, I encourage you to speak up. We'll talk about it. Like, unless somebody's bleeding to death, there's room and space and time to have those discussions. And most of the time, nothing comes up. But the fact that people have an invitation, I think it makes a difference. It also makes people want to work with you. Interestingly. Okay. Sunshine, do you have enough to move forward? Okay. Those are really great tips. I appreciate that. Good. So Pilates says, I agree with putting steps on the wall and do it when needed. But at my old job, the nurses reported that to the chief of service. And I was told by the chief to stop doing that. Could be a double-edged sword. Hmm. Can I, Jess, can I say, so uh, Pilates, I totally agree. I had uh, the head of the OR reported me to HR that I lacked confidence because I would bring photos or the steps of a case to teach the residents or whatever. Um, And I totally agree. And uh, for Sunshine, uh, as you head out in the world as a female surgeon, you do have to be careful. But at the same time, I say a big F you. To anybody who complains that we come to the OR prepared. Mm-hmm. I completely Perfect. agree. And I would add that other industries that outpace us by 20 years as far as safety is concerned. Yep. Built these things in, in the form of checklists. There is no pilot on the planet that takes off in an airplane without going through an extensive checklist about everything that's going to happen and the contingency for if something goes wrong every time. 
the plane does not take off. So that would be the equivalent of us taking our plan, going through it step by painful step with everybody in the room and getting a, yep, uh uh-huh, yep. And if that doesn't work, then what? Yep, okay. And if that doesn't work, then what? Before we ever cut skin. Yep. That's why the airline industry is as safe as it is. Yeah. I think it's a, I think it's a great idea. I remember so, young, attending at my residency, he would do that. And I actually was like, I, I want to, I want to do that when I get out. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you so much, everybody for contributing to that conversation. Um, who is next? Okay. Let's see here. Who's next? Anybody else have anything to talk about or to add? Okay, here we go. Here comes Pilates. Or pilots. (laughs) Hey, Jess, could you imagine if at Gossip Hospital, I dared try to put the tourniquet up 30 minutes past two hours? Oh, my gosh. Uh, No. (laughs) I think everyone would lose their shit. How many would pull Um, the fire alarm? (laughs) Maybe. Um, so yeah, this is amazing how differently the male surgeons are treated, but, um, that's actually, um, along the lines of what I wanted to discuss, um, this concept of always having to be nice. Um, and I know you and I sort of discussed it briefly, um, but I had a situation on Monday in clinic where, um, we elevated one of the MAs to a clinic manager six months ago. And they recently salaried her. She's gotten a pay bump, but, um, you know, she's never been a manager before. There's, there was no one to train her. Um, so I don't, you know, I personally haven't seen a difference. Um, if anything, I've seen her work less. And, um, in our clinics, the physicians always get priorities for MAs over the PAs. And on Monday, while we were short staffed, um, one of, two of the other physicians were out. So I basically was the only physician there that day. And my clinic was not appropriately staffed. It was just my MA and I'm very, very procedure heavy. So if my MA is like helping with the procedure or doing something, then, you know, the patients can't be roomed. Um, you know, I think I had patients waiting for like an hour and a half, um, on a not bad schedule. So when I brought this up to the, you know, the MA who's like kind of our lead MA, um, you know, I said to her, um, you know, my clinic should have been better staffed, you know, we could have had one MA for the PA's clinics, um, you know, you, because she will sometimes help out on Mondays, but she kind of uses it as like a time to fool around, like she's not really doing managerial stuff. Um, and I said, you know, you could have helped in my clinic, and she's very prone to interrupting. So I'm kind of fed up with the interruption. So I said to her, please do not interrupt me this turn. And then all of a sudden she flipped out. This turned into like a big screaming match. Like one of the PAs heard it on the other end of the office when he was with a patient. Um, She was telling me that, um, you know, I need to speak to her nicely, which I thought I was like, I don't think I said that in a snappy way, but maybe I did. I really, it wasn't, it certainly wasn't my intention. Um, and I don't think I did. She said she doesn't have to listen to me, even though I'm um, the physician and it's my clinic. Um, 
And she's like, you know, we're two different, we're two adults. So I sent, and, and, you know, she was kind of blocking the door to my office. So I couldn't leave. And she also wouldn't close the door. So basically everybody heard this argument and I couldn't really get her to calm down. Um, so I sent an email to our practice manager and to the two partners um, because there's been some issues with professionalism with her, um, overstepping her boundaries. We're the same age. So I think she kind of, looks at that as, oh, you're young like me, I can treat you however I like. Um, You know, we're in a professional environment, you can't say whatever's on your mind, you can't behave however you want to. And I think unfortunately, she sets the tone for how the other MAs behave. So today, um, you know, I I talked to our practice manager, and I said, you know, how do you want to handle this? Like, have you talked to her? Do you want to write her up? Because in any other job, like she would have been fired for that. And he says, well, you've been really nasty to me. And I said, when have I been nasty to you? Because I do not recall any negative interactions um, with him ever. He's been here for almost a year. Because, um, you know, he's very good at like neutralizing things like, yeah, 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 I'll do what you say and then not doing it. So I've never, I don't recall any negative interactions with him. And I asked him, do you have specifics? What are you talking about? I don't recall anything. I don't know, but you've been really nasty. Now he and I are both, we actually moved from next to the town I grew up in, which is like a New York city suburb. And you know, we talk very directly up there. Um, I've sort of changed my way of talking since moving out of there. But, um, you know, people complain about him all the time and the way he speaks to them. But I never think anything of it because I just, you know, I just say in his tone of voice, nothing sounds bad to me. Um, and I said, was this in emails that I've sent? Because I'm really frustrated that you don't answer my emails. So I will send you a direct email if I'm spending all this time, you know, trying to fight for my paycheck or, you know, these things that I'm not hearing for you from. Um, and he said, no, no, it's not an email. I don't remember what the interaction was. So I don't know if it's just like nonsense and BS because the PAs all have said hands down. They've never heard me yell at everyone, anyone. Um, I don't think there's a point in yelling at our MAs because they're all so useless that it's like, why would you waste your breath? We're not going to do anything anyway. Um, but, you know, how are you sort of expected to be nice all the time if the people who are, like, supporting you in your job are not doing their job? Yeah, so, nice. This is tricky. I think I told the practice well, because I told the practice manager, I said, listen, you know how much I've been working and every single weekend I've had to do like my own accounting to send you an email on how much money the group owes me and you don't respond. Now, I'm also not great at defending myself. I should have just said, you know, no, I don't think I've yelled at you. I don't recall any negative interactions. Like give me an example and left it at that. Um, but it's like, you know, if, I mean, you know how hard I've worked over the last three weeks. If I'm doing that and then on the weekends doing your job, Um, I don't think I can be expected to be nice all the time. Yeah. Um, remind me who said you needed to be nice. The practice manager, um, the MA, the lead MA said, I need to talk to her like an adult. And she said this while she was pointing her finger in my face. Um, and I was like, well, that's not very adult. 
Uh, but he was the one when I said to him, like, hey, how do you want to manage this? All of a sudden says, well, you've been nasty to me. And I was like, I'm not even talking about you and I. Okay. And also one of the partners, the junior partner, is a complete a-hole to all the staff. He's nasty to everybody. He yells at everybody. But then when I bring that up, oh, no, he doesn't yell. And I'm like, I witness him yelling at you in the hallway all the time. Yeah. So. Um, I don't think nice is always the most effective way to engage. And in fact, it can be yep. quite ineffective because it can yeah. lead to doing shit you don't want to do. Right. But perhaps what these people are trying to say, because they also sound ineffective, is, is there a way to have discourse that's productive and delightful rather than discourse that's, you know, loud and yelling, like you said, the word yelling match or screaming match. Um, you know, this woman's pointing her finger at you. You're clearly judgmental of her and this other guy. And so it's like, if we're trying to imagine what's happening on a screen, of course we all side with you because we all see, like we all experiencing the, the, excuse me, I can't speak. Um, we all experience these issues where it seems like the rules are different for other people. Like, right. men. And perhaps the rules actually are different. But at the end of the day, I don't know that niceness is going to get the job done. And I don't know that what you're doing is getting the job done. Right. So I will say that in general, if there's an issue, I will approach someone, you know, like at the end of the day. Right. Um, Or if it needs to be addressed, then I might say something to them then. But usually it's like when everything's over and when we have a minute. I usually bring them into my office, do it one-on-one, you know, not like publicly in the hallway in front of everyone. Mm -hmm. And usually the interactions are fine. So I was really surprised that this one with her got out of hand. I think I'm just, I was just probably frustrated with how much she interrupts and like doesn't listen um, when she's new in a role that she's never been trained for. Um, And even with the practice manager, I mean, we've talked so many times. And like I said, one-on-one, I do not recall any negative interactions with him. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, I will sit down and talk to him, you know, in a more productive manner. So I don't know. I mean, if anybody else can think of what else to do, I'm not sure, like, how else better to convey that when it seems to be like the same issues over and over So when you're speaking with um, the MA and you're saying the words, this is a, this is an exercise I love doing. You're saying the words, you know, yada, yada, yada at the MA, Mm -hmm. but you have thought bubbles above your head. Yeah. What are those thought bubbles? What, what would we read in the thought bubbles? Would we read something like you are such a lazy dumbass? Yeah, you would read something like you're not doing the job that you are being like that you got promoted for or paid for. Yeah, I think that sounds too sanitized. Like you're not doing your job. Is it really you're not doing your job or is it you're a waste of 
human flesh. <laughs> no, it's literally. I don't like know. Not, you tell me. You know, it's literally you're not doing your job because as a lead okay. MA, it's her responsibility to like allocate the resources. And then as the practice manager, like it's his responsibility to make sure that the paychecks are accurate and, you know, stuff gets paid out on time. Yeah. If the MA, the lead MA had thought bubbles above her head, what do you guess her thought bubbles would say? Because she's saying words at you and pointing her finger at you, which is her action line in the model. And so she's got her thoughts and feelings that are feeding into that. So what would her thought bubble say? Probably we're the same age. Why are you bossing me around or like why do you think you're better than me or something like that okay so it's possible that this lady's bringing some kind of a residue of inferiority that's what the practice manager said um he's like you know i think he she looks at you and says why are you in this position and she's not yeah. Okay. So let's run with that. Let's just assume that that's true. Mm-hmm. Knowing that and knowing that what you bring to the conversation is either going to escalate her or de-escalate her. What would you do differently? Um, Probably what I should have done. And I'm not great at this because if you come at me, I will just fight you right back. Um. Mm-hmm. But probably what I should have done is said, okay, everyone's too angry. Like, please leave my office. We can discuss this later. Um, It just so happened the practice manager was not there that day. But, you know, when he returned to the office, I could have brought her in, you know, and just said, this is an issue with clinic. And then that way there's, you know, like a third party witness. Maybe it doesn't feel so um, direct. Yeah, that's an option. Another option might be to actually treat her like she is the, you know, is in the role that she's in, which is the clinic manager. Mm-hmm. Like, um, I'm going to call her Cindy. Cindy, congratulations on becoming clinic manager. What is your interpretation of how this afternoon went? Where do you, you know, what blah, 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 blah. Like ask her for her input on what has just occurred before you talk at her with all the things that you already know have gone wrong. Like assess her level of understanding of this entire situation. Like it invites her into a conversation that has a potential to be collaborative Yeah, and that's what I've done with her in the past, and I did not do that this time. Okay. Yeah, it's like, okay, so you're the clinic manager now, and, you know, what, you know, what do you see, blah, 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 or whatever. Then she answers, and that gives you an opportunity to then say, here are the roadblocks I saw this afternoon. How can we resolve this? So that we are both getting what what we want and what we think is going to make a successful clinic. Ultimately, what you want is going to be the most important, but we don't even know she has any good ideas unless 
you give her an opportunity to share them. Yeah. And I mean, you know, I did tell her, I said, cause I think my frustrating part was not, okay. She's like not acting with a clinic manager. It's that any time you try to talk to her, she will immediately interrupt you before you get four to five words out. Um, and she said, she said, you know, I don't like to hear negative stuff. I just close my mind. And I was like, well, being a manager sucks. Like all you hear is negative stuff. Um, but I think my frustration was not because it did turn out that she told the other MAs to do something and they didn't do it. Um, but I think it was more that, you know, it kind of escalated because I was frustrated that she constantly interrupts and doesn't actually listen to whatever we're trying to discuss. Yeah. So, um, it sounds like this person is either going to sink or swim, maybe sink. I don't know. We'll see. You know, it's, <laughs> see what it's, happen. Those, you know, it's one of those things where it's like, obviously, you know, and I get it. Like I'm not a partner where she maybe behaves a little bit differently in front of the partners, um, versus me. Mm-hmm. Um, like last week, I'm not like conservative or like prudish by any means, but she said something so inappropriate to me on a personal level that I was kind of taken aback, you know, that someone thinks that in a professional environment, you, you know, forget about the fact that like I'm the physician that you can speak to anybody in the office that way. And when I addressed this with her, she said, well, you know me, I just say what's on my mind and I step over the boundaries and I don't care. And I'm like, well, you know, this is a, professional environment like you can't yell back at the doctor you can't like say these inappropriate things to people um so I think it was just sort of brewing where I just felt like the baby behavior was unprofessional and then it kind of like escalated to this whole thing yeah I just had a new thought on this you mentioned that this person has had nobody to train her Yeah. And I'm not suggesting that you be the one to train her because clearly that's not your job. But you can certainly model uh, an effective way of existing in this profession and clinic that could be really beneficial to her professionally. Um, Another way to, you know, come in. And none of this has to do with being nice. It just has to do with um, respecting another human being for the fact that they're a human being. You don't have to like what they do, but in general, we get farther when we um, drop judgment and offer some level of respect for another person. Um, The... The like her ability, she's obviously lacking skills, right? She's obviously lacking skills. So then that would be the other thing. It's like how how can you intercede to help get her the skills that she needs, whether that's getting somebody to train her or whatever. Like, or is this just the way of it that this group is such a clown show that nobody knows what the other person's doing and nobody's got their hands on the on the wheels. I don't know. With some of the stories you've told us, it's hard to know. Um, It's definitely the latter. Um, So we lost, basically we had, we lost, we're a small group, right? We lost 13 employees in like seven weeks last spring, including 
all anyone who had any experience. So um, she was just elevated to the clinic manager because she does have a little bit stronger personality. We had some male MAs who were really stubborn and, you know, out of the two MAs that had been there the longest, she was the one personality wise that could handle them. Um, and I do recognize that. And I've actually tried to do some training. Like if something's not correct, just like pointing it out to her that, Hey, you know, if we don't do it this way, we're not going to get reimbursed or whatever, but she's been very resistant to that. Um, and I know that my partners don't bother to train anybody. Um, and one of them actually said to her last week, um, you know, the one that yells at everybody, I don't expect you to know everything that goes on in my clinic, but I expect you to like, you know, like allocate people to do stuff. Um, so I've tried to tell her, like, even, you know, there's something that, um, cause we have two offices. There's something that, um, she is doing incorrectly that's causing us to not get paid. And it's done correctly at the other office. But when anyone tries to correct her on it, she fights them and argues them with them. And then they just continue to do it the wrong way. Why was this person promoted? Um, you know, I'm again, I'm not, you know, there's not very much transparency here. So I don't know what they're doing. Um, but I don't, I think she may have been promoted just to maybe get her to stay or, um, you know, just show, Oh, look, there's someone here who can be a point person in the clinic. Um, but to me compared to our last two clinic managers we had, um, she does not care how people's clinic goes, except for like the owner of the group shop. She cares about his clinic. She doesn't care how anyone's clinic goes. She doesn't care if things are done correctly um or if she was taught a certain way and it was wrong because there's been a lot of like wrong teaching passed down just because of our high turnover um she's not interested in learning the right way to do it um you know i've heard her you know kind of berating the mas in the middle of clinic instead of you know like you said talking to them in a respectful way so i don't know i personally would not have promoted her without some sort of like training or expectation management. Mm-hmm. Um, and the problem is even when I bring this up to the practice manager, because he's not clinical, he does not care. Um, that's part of the reason everything's a shit show is everyone knows he doesn't care about clinics. So there's really no boss for anyone to go to. So you have a handle on this person, how she shows up, what her vibe is. Uh, the practice manager too. What do you think would work to influence her based on what you know? I think honestly, it would have to come from the partners. Like I know, for example, like um, in my clinic, so in our office, um, each of the docs can do what they want in terms of like masking and whatnot. So like one of the doctors doesn't, and then the rest of us do, we require masks for like the staff and the patients. And if I ask her to wear one when she's helping out with my patients, she will roll her eyes. She will storm off. Um, the practice managers talked to her about this a couple of times. But I think because the senior partner likes her, um, she probably thinks she's like fairly untouchable. Mm-hmm. So if if you're noticing that you're not going to be the one that's going to influence her directly... Although I do think that's possible and I think you're capable of it. Mm. Perhaps 
a less bumpy road would be to try to then wield your influence with the partners in a way that is not antagonistic, but that is helpful to this person and helpful to the practice. Your practice sounds like it is in bad shape. 13 people left. Nobody knows their ass from a hole in the wall. (laughs) And so can you guys afford to lose another person? Is it worth some kind of an investment in this person to help her rise up to the challenge? And if it's not going to come from you, then it has to come from somebody. So where can you wield your influence so that the job gets done? Because at the end of the day, it doesn't matter who does it. It matters what the outcome is. Right. Um, and again, like I said, I keep trying to go to the practice manager because he's not clinical and he is very overwhelmed with like trying to fix other shit show things. Um, the senior partner in particular is extremely non-confrontational. Like, I think a lot of the reason we have a lot of problems in the practice is because he just won't handle any issues. So there's staff members that hands down, everyone thinks needs to be fired, but because they behave in front of him and do a good job with him, he he won't do anything about it. Um, Because I've talked to him about several staff members and he'll tell me how great they are. Um, He also... His clinic is like overstaffed. So if he and I have the same amount of patients, I get one MA and he'll get three MAs. So um, what he does is instead of addressing an issue, he just hires more people to like, you know, cover up an issue. So instead of addressing with her, hey, you need to allocate the resources that are needed or like shape up these MAs that are being lazy he'll just hire two extra MAs to like make up for the deficit. I think what you really need to do here is just determine what is worth your time and energy. It sounds like you, you have to buy your time or what's the phrase? Bide your time, bide your time for a short period. And what is it that you're going to choose to spend your energy on? Is it worth it? I think that's the question. Is it worth it for you to try to fix any of this or wield your influence in any way or not? Um, I think on Monday, it certainly felt worth it because Monday was supposed to be my early day. And after, you know, working nonstop for three weeks, I just really wanted to, you know, be done with work and go do real life things. And I was unable to because my clinic was such a nightmare. I ended up being there the full day. Mm-hmm. So it's like, I feel like I have to say something. So, cause I, you know, again, I'm trying to like cope the best way I can here and kind of preserve some semblance of like sanity and lifestyle. Um, but you know, if the clinic's a nightmare and we're just not finishing on time, then I can't get out to do that. Yeah. So I think this, this would be the thing to consider like, okay, is it worth your time and energy? Because it's eaten up more time and energy, even past Monday night. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm Mm-hmm. That's number one. Number two, 
either this place is just a complete shit show and it's hopeless, or there's something that you're bringing that's causing or at least contributing to the situation that you experience. And if so, what could that be? And I hope there's something that you notice because that's the only thing you can really do anything about. Like, even though it doesn't feel good to think that way, it's actually a good thing because that's the only thing you can really do anything about is the thing that you're, you're bringing that might be contributing to it. So maybe take a look at that and see, okay, do I want to waste my energy? Do I want to, or would this be a waste of my energy or is this worth it? Because when something's really worth it, we're willing to do whatever it takes. Yeah. Then the second thing, oh, somebody just said they like my shirt. I got my bone shirt on. Um, so that's the first thing. And then the second thing is, is okay, either this place is a complete hopeless shit show or maybe there's something I'm doing or bringing that's contributing to it. And if so, what is that? Because that's where I can do something about it. And if you figure it out, and I'll think about it too, then let me know and we can meet again and try to try to work out what that might be. Because if that's the case, then there's a lot of stuff you can do about it. And that just involves kind of similar to the conversation we had recently where we just look at, okay, what skills do I need here to fill this gap? Yeah, um, I did ask my MA, um, you know, to like tell me honestly, did she feel I was very snappy and like just to give me an objective opinion. And she said, I don't think you're snappy. Um, I don't think you yell at the staff, but you know, you are under more stress than Mm -hmm. the other docs and PAs because you work so much more than they do. So you get stressed sometimes because like if she she and I don't really have issues, but if we do, it's like literally for 10 minutes and then it's fine. So Mm -hmm. she's like, I don't think people realize like the stress you're under and like how much you work and this and that. So then that's what it is. So people sense it. And it's mm-hmm. repellent. People don't like it. They don't like to feel stressed out. So Neither that- do I. <laughs> <laughs> but how awesome to have like something you can identify that you could actually work with and deal with. And it will not only make your experience of the whole thing better, but will help other people. They'll be delighted to work with you. Mm-hmm. And more inclined to help. Okay. Yeah. I know we didn't solve it completely, but I think we just kind of like grabbed onto something. We've got some more we could do with that. So I think I'll be coaching yep. again on Monday. If you want to, if you have time to come, if you're not stuck in your shit show clinic. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think I definitely have stuff to work on between now and then. So this was good. Thank you. Okay. You're welcome. Okay, guys, this was important for everybody because honestly, like it's either the way of it that whatever we're going through is like, has all the power and control or there's something that we're bringing. And hopefully there is something we're bringing because that's the thing we can work on. Um, Awesome. Have a great night, everybody. I love you all dearly.